0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Self Storage Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Myers, and this podcast is sponsored by the Self Storage Starter Program, which was developed to bring you the courses, resources, support, and tools that you need to grow your self-storage investing business. Now, there has never been a better time to invest in self-storage, and my team and I have been preparing for the opportunities that the next recession would provide all the seasoned and educated self-storage investors and folks that time is now. None of us could have predicted that the pandemic and a recession would happen as suddenly as it did, but we were prepared, and we want to ensure that you are as well. Our mastery programs and mentoring allows people to reduce the risk of their investments by using our knowledge, our network, and our experience. And we've been helping self-storage investors to achieve their goals for over 15 years now, and we have an extremely talented, highly successful team that is not only experienced in self-storage, but these folks are dialed in and creating massive success in our clients' lives. Go to selfstorageinvesting.com forward slash starter and enter promo code selfstorage now where you're going to get 30 days free of the self-storage starter program, which includes seven modules over 12 weeks, along with monthly live coaching meetings to get all your questions answered, all for just $97 a month. So go to selfstorageinvesting.com forward slash starter and use promo code selfstorage now to get one month free. This is the self-storage podcast where we share the knowledge and skills from the industry's leading investors, developers, and operators to help you launch and grow your self-storage business. I'm your host, Scott Myers, and over the past 16 years, we have acquired, developed, converted, and syndicated over 2 million square feet of self-storage nationwide with the help of my incredible team at selfstorageinvesting.com who has helped thousands of people achieve greatness in self-storage. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Self Storage Podcast. I am your host, Scott Myers, and today's episode is going to be a solo teaching session where we're gonna be talking about how to assemble a loan package. You know, one of the biggest challenges folks have when they first start out in the business or even in a lending environment, which presents some challenges like we had in the beginning of COVID, is how do we get the money? We had several of our projects that were stalled as a result of COVID. The banks um, held off a little bit. They were holding their breath, seeing what was gonna happen in the market, in the lending environment, if you will, waiting to see what their neighbors their, their other friendly competitors, other banks were doing. They were then rewriting their underwriting principles to make sure that they were safe, being conservative and preparing for somewhat of an unknown and perhaps a, a rocky environment ahead of us and a rocky market. Well, we've come off the other side of that. The banks have opened up and what they have done is they have gotten a little more conservative in their underwriting. The money is flowing again. And as we all know, self-storage does extremely well during every recession and has weathered the storm during the pandemic better than all other forms of commercial real estate. So with that in mind, what we wanted to do is to touch on, first of all, some of the changes that we've seen in the lending environment, but more importantly, for some of you who may still be sitting on the sidelines, either fearful that you're going to get turned down or that have just kind of really hit the pause button waiting for some extremely good news. Well, uh, wait no longer because the time is now and you do not want to miss out on the greatest opportunity we have seen for the biggest land grab, the biggest self-storage grab in all of self-storage and or real estate that I've seen in my several years, uh, uh, approaching now 28 years investing in real estate. So with that, I thought we would focus today on the best ways to get the funding. How to assemble a loan package, navigating today's lending environment, what lenders want, and ultimately how to get approved for a loan. The facts of the matter are, first of all, banks want to see good credit. I mean, I think we all know that. That's no surprise. Banks don't lend to borrowers who are late on their mortgages or defaulted on their homes. And so that is one piece of the puzzle, but they do what's called global underwriting. And so they're going to look at your deal as well as you as a borrower. And so long as there aren't, huge skeletons in your closet and bankruptcies and foreclosures in the past they're going to look more in commercial real estate to the strength of the property than the strength of the borrower but what they also want to see in case this happens is if there is a situation where the project is not doing so well the portfolio is not doing so well that the investor is involved in and or the market is not doing very well well banks want to see that you have some cash reserves a shortfall in case Things don't go as planned. Banks don't lend to borrowers who are trying to take cash out of their commercial real estate because they have financial difficulties elsewhere. So they're going to underwrite you globally. Find out how and how healthy the rest of your portfolio is before they're going to look at this property that you're putting in front of them to maybe be the savior to your other uh, projects. They're going to do a global cash flow analysis, limiting the borrower typically to 50% debt to income. And that is in best case scenario. In many others, they want to see a little more cash than that. They want to see less leverage. Again, It really depends upon lenders, but that is more of a rule of thumb. They also want to see your experience and how well-versed you are in real estate, how successful you've been. How's the outcome been for your other projects? Because they're not going to lend to new inexperienced self-storage operators in this market right now. If they're going to, it's going to be a very, very low loan to value, which means you're going to have to come up with a lot of capital, a lot of cash. They typically, in that case, will want to see perhaps another guarantor and that guarantor should, or they would like to see that that guarantor has experience in self-storage. And it could be all of the above that you need to bring in another guarantor to sign on the loan for additional credit strength and has a stronger balance sheet and have somebody else that is experienced in self-storage storage if you do not. What banks are looking for is really they want to have a relationship with you. They're, they're seeking additional deposits. They want to see that you're going to put money in their account, open up an account in exchange for lending to you. Now, this isn't always a deal breaker. If you say no, it's certainly that is what they want to see. They're almost always going to ask unless there are some lenders out there that don't operate like a traditional bank. They just lend money. But uh, typically they do. They are set up to have banking relationships with their borrowers. We have a lot of properties. Um, you know, in any given time, we've got 40 to 50 properties all across the country. And so we bank with one bank. And that is because we want to have a bank close to our facilities. Therefore, the deposits that are made by the manager can be made very easily. If they have to run into the bank, they can do that close by. Most everything is done online, but we still like to have a branch close by. So for that reason, we don't want to have 50 different banks set up and then be able to try to manage that. So if we're looking at our key performance indicators and or just basic accounting, getting reporting on a monthly basis, if we have to go out to 50 different lenders versus one or two lenders, you know that is is what makes our business successful is reporting and being able to get a hold of those numbers and make decisions based on the numbers. So, So banks do understand that. And I will always push back as to whether we want to have an account opened up because it also doesn't make any sense to have a bank account opened up and have a dollar in it or a thousand. And they don't, that's not really what they're looking for anyways. And so I will push back on that, but just realize uh, and be prepared for the banks to ask for that. They also want proof. They're going to be looking for proof on your project. So when you go in to prepare a loan package, it is your full due diligence package. They want to see that you've dotted all your I's, crossed all your T's, looked under every rock. They want to have a marketing study. that is associated with this, whether it is internal, there are many third-party reports that you can purchase online to do a market analysis. You can have feasibility studies done and you will need feasibility studies done if you're doing a development project, a conversion project, or even if it's something that is a a pretty severe turnaround project, uh, meaning it is underperforming uh, by quite a bit and is uh, not up to, you know it's only 20%, 30% occupied, but it is an existing facility that has been around for a number of years. So in addition to performing due diligence on your facility, expect to turn over a full due diligence package to the lender because they're going to want to see the exact same things that you are looking for because they're the ones who ultimately own the facility. Yes, they put out all the money on it. They have a right to it. They are just uh, allowing you to be able to use it and uh, loan you money to be able to uh, run it, which is just another way of uh, being able to look at your banks and as partners because they truly are. So what you can expect the bank to ask for in terms of uh, due diligence and property needs, they're going to want to see the management reports, management summary report, uh, they're going to want to see a rent roll, a unit mix, profit and loss on the property up to three years and year to date. They want to see a general ledger, bank accounts if you can get that from the current owner, so long as they're not commingled, and three-year tax returns, federal only, but um, including all the schedules for this particular piece of uh, real estate. So those are just some. They're going to want to see an appraisal as well for the borrower. For you, they're going to want to see your personal financial statement. So you're going to want to be able to shore that up and get that in in place, and then check in very short order if you don't already have that done. They're going to want to see three years tax returns on you, federal only, all schedules. They're going to want to see your bank, your brokerage uh, statements to show proof of your liquidity. They want to see a bio or a resume on you to see your past experience, as well as a business plan that outlines exactly what your business does, but then particularly this project, what the business plan is for this particular facility. And so at this point, and there's going to be a number of other items, and depending upon the bank you go with, uh, the SBA seems to be a little more uh, intrusive. They require quite a bit more. Um, Other banks don't require uh, as much. There are some asset-based lenders that need very little information, just more of the property information than they do yourselves. Be prepared if you're already talking to the commercial lender at the bank that behind that lender is the underwriter and the underwriter is going to have a lot of questions and come back to you and ask those. So, you know, the relationship at at times may seem a little maybe tenuous if you will because there's some things that they're going to be asking for and they're looking for proof and it may seem like they're really digging in and, and getting a nosy and not trusting what you have given them and that's because they don't. So they want to see the proof of that. They want to see written proof by way of documents that you are who you say you are as a borrower. And this project is uh, everything that you say it is uh, when you walk into the bank as well. But that needs to be proven by supplying uh, the documents. Don't be afraid, however, also to push back. You need to know the current value of your property. And so you've done your due diligence. You've run the numbers. You've got all the income that comes into the facility. You have all of the expense items that are a part of this facility as well. You've drilled down to a solid net operating income, you've applied a market cap rate that is realistic in this market where properties are trading right now. And you're going to put a valuation on this facility now. But then also, if it's a developmental project, as well as a or a conversion or a value add existing facility, then you're going to include your projections as to what the value is going to be in a year from now, in three years from now, five years from now, 10 years or, or longer. And just because the bank comes back with assumptions as to th- that aren't the same as your projections. And by the way, your projections shouldn't be lofty as a matter of fact if anything they should be conservative because you want to outperform you want to be able to create safe assumptions for yourself and the last thing you want is for this project um, your exuberance and your optimism to get in the way of the success of this project however the banks and the appraisers you know they they may come back and you know not give enough credit for certain areas or markets and things and so it's up to you to once again like we teach the sellers and educate them as to what is happening in the marketplace right now and what the true income and expenses are their facility? You know, after they sell it, you're doing the exact same thing with the bank and showing them just exactly how this is going to operate and what your projections are, and that's based upon real world knowledge, experience, and again the data and the numbers. How much is the bank going to give you? What is the loan to value? And this, quite honestly, it varies by region, it varies by state. And obviously it varies by bank and and the type of program that they have and the type of lender. SBA usually being a higher leverage lender, anywhere from, well, they start around 75%, depending upon the deal and your experience. 80 to 85% is where we've seen them fall on a regular basis, and they will go up to 90% loan to value. I would see on the high end, most likely from community banks, credit unions, savings and loans, traditional banks, that the highest you're going to see is 80%. uh, The lowest is going to be 50%. And you're going to settle somewhere around, usually for existing facilities, right around on that 70 to 80 percent. If it is a development project or a conversion, typically going to be around 65 to 75 percent at the high end of a LTC or loan to cost. But all of this is capped by, especially in regards to existing facilities, it's capped by the debt service coverage ratio, which means the amount of money that it's coming in needs to be, depending upon the bank, roughly 1.25 times the debt service. So the net operating income, what it's bringing in, has to be 1.25 times your monthly debt service, and that's all in. It. So that that number includes taxes, insurance, and everything else that has already been accounted for. All right. So now, in terms of our valuation, we have that net operating income. We have all the expenses. We have all the income that is coming into a facility. We have proofed that by getting a feasibility study. We have our market analysis and we have all of our due diligence items. So now we drill down to an NOI, what is a cap rate that we're going to use to then apply to this facility to determine the value? Well, first of all, capitalization rate is your NOI divided by, you know, in this case, the value. So your net operating income divided by the purchase price gives you the cap rate where it's sitting right now before you decide to invest in it. So that's the going-in cap rate. Now, that's going to change depending on how you negotiate, and really what we're looking for is a cap rate that is commensurate to the grade of the facility and the market that it's in. So if it is a Class A facility, a B or a C, then we're going to go out and find capitalization rates, cap rates, of the A's, B's, and C's that have sold in this particular market. What part of the country is it in? That's also going to dictate where the cap rate is set. West Coast being a little bit uh, lower. It's a little more competitive. There is some value add out there versus a rural somewhere in the Midwest, smaller facility where cap rate has to be higher. The return has to be higher in order for that seller to entice a buyer to come out and buy this smaller rural facility that is a little more difficult uh, to manage. Class A facilities, more REIT or investment grade is going to be in the lower cap rate ranges. And again, higher cap rate means a higher return on investment. That is what is needed by the seller in order to get somebody interested in buying this particular facility. So going in cap rate, again, NOI divided by the value, which means what you're purchasing at. Then you're going to look at an exit cap rate, which means that depending upon when you look to sell it, two years, five years down the road, um, you are going to apply a cap rate to it, to that valuation. So you're going to take into consideration the interest rates and is it trending up or down or where you feel it's going to be in two, three, five, ten years from now. And be conservative, maybe add at least another point on top of that to give yourself a buffer as to where you think you're going to sell it. There's the buyer's cap rate, which is the cap rate that you're using under your particular scenario and how you're going to manage it and really what your threshold is and what your criteria is in terms of buying. The seller's got a cap rate as well, obviously. That's driven by price. There's the broker's cap rate, which is realistic, which means this is what's going to get this deal across the finish line because here's what the appraiser's going to use. Here's what the bank's going to use. And of all the facilities I've closed in the past year, there were class B facilities located in this part of the Midwest, here's the cap rate that I'm going to use. And then the lender is going to have a cap rate as well, which is going to be based upon the appraisers and their own internal underwriting. So all that to confuse you? No, all of that to say that each person in this transaction has a different cap rate that is driven by price and their cost of capital. Now, we've got videos on cap rate and how to calculate all these, so we're not going to spend more time, but we could spend at least um, a half an hour to an hour talking about capitalization rate, Um, but uh, not this time around because we need to get your deal across the finish line. So where do you get the cap rate? Appraisers, self-storage appraisers in your area, self-storage brokers in your area, from comps that have sold, average of uh, the last five sales in your area, average those out. Looking at about six months out or more maybe be worthless. Um, I, I think for the most part, you need to stick to ones that have um, traded within the past six months. Property values are dropping. Cap rates are rising. Just to recognize that. And uh, the ideas of values are often not accurate because that's what it is. At the end of the day, everybody has an idea of value, but you need to drill down to the true numbers to understand what it's going to take to get across the finish line. And then also the number that you are comfortable with. What are the average cap rates you ask for a Class A facility? The um, REITs, uh, the you know the big folks, the Class A gleaming three-story facilities with all temperature controlled, all the bells and whistles located in the metropolitan statistical areas. And we've seen them in the 4% range, 4% to 6%. Class B facilities, typically going to be in the 6 to 8% range. And Class B could be single-story, could be multi-story. They are located sometimes within the MSAs, sometimes um, outside of it, getting a little further away from the the metro area. Good maintenance, good solid structure, maybe a little bit older, not have all the bells and whistles, but still be professionally managed and well-maintained. And then Class C facilities, we're looking at that 9 to anywhere, you know, to 11 12 13%. Those could be first-generation facilities. They could be somewhat uh, economically obsolete. They may not be very well-maintained. They're out in the rural parts of town, older, single-story, no amenities, not professionally managed. These are typically the value-add turnaround projects. So in terms of cap rates, those are the areas that we're seeing right now. Again, all dependent upon uh, cap rate and all depending upon uh, interest rates at, at this time. So the cons, if you will, of using a cap rate for valuation purposes. Is, is that it only considers a snapshot in time. It really disregards the property's expected performance over the holding period. It works with a number that is just for today. It's at making sure that you are getting as close to possible as buying the facility what the value is uh, today. And it really only looks at one year. We're looking backwards um, for one year. It doesn't tell you what the cap rate will be in the following years, because we don't know what interest rates are going to be or how much you're going to improve the facility. They change over time, cap rates do. They are not time constant. And it also assumes that data was reported accurately. And so, even those ranges, those numbers that I just gave you, if I can't buy a facility in a 10 to 11% cap rate range, it doesn't mean that I don't buy it because that facility, it could be a Class C facility that's only 30% occupied. It is in a part of town that is growing. The growth is coming. It just hasn't been managed well. There's no website. It's got deferred maintenance, but it also has an acre alongside of it. So that once you fill this up, since it's only 30% occupied, get it up to 85 or 90, I can build another building, get all the rents up, add a website, do some curb appeal. A lot of landscaping, updating the facility, maybe putting steel roofs on where it has shingled, maybe adding gravel where it has dirt, or maybe adding asphalt where it has gravel and improving the facility. So I don't look at just cap rate when I go into a project because I bought facilities that were at a 0% cap rate and it didn't even cover, there was no way it was going to cover a loan, period. But the upside was so tremendous that we don't look at everything going into it and, and apply a cap rate to it and assume that that is a constant because it uh, absolutely is not. By the way, that 0% cap rate deal that uh, we bought for 545000 we eventually sold it for 1775000 So again, not the only factor when looking at valuation. Increasing income. So how are we going to increase the income to make sure that we meet that debt service coverage ratio and then show the lender that we're going to be able to do this? Well, one is by raising rents and these facilities that we're looking at, they should be value-add and they should be below market. And the seller just has not kept up. We're going to maximize the revenue streams, the ancillary income streams, those profit centers that you can add to a self-storage facility. And we've identified a number of those that you can add to, once again, bolster the performance and make sure that we, are our, uh, we have the value to be able to refinance or sell this facility and pay off that loan. But they also want to see that you have a solid set of operational systems in place, that um, you have a management company that you are the management company and that you have the best business practices and standard operating procedures put in place. And in many cases that it's automated, that you have some degree of automation to be able to allow folks to rent a unit online by way of a cell phone and to be able to move in without the use of a manager or somebody on site and that you have some management expertise. If you don't have it, that you have purchased it by way of hiring a third party management company. But regardless of who is behind the desk that uh, you are training them on a regular basis. And that business plan of yours needs to have training of the manager behind the counter as a key piece to this. And then again, how to add new revenue generators, adding different profit centers, additional profit centers that are not in place right now to not just rely on the income and the expenses in the P&L, but these additional income streams. That is what is going to get them excited about how you can grow the value of this uh, facility. So typically when banks look at the income to expense ratio on a facility, all things being equal, meaning that the, the rents are where they should be for the market. Expenses are in line. The expense to income ratio, national average is roughly around 35% or so across the country. And again, it varies by class A. They have a, a little higher expense ratio in many cases. Those class C facilities where they have a very little expenses, period, running in them could be as low as 25%. The percent square foot change from the previous year is um, roughly 7% or so, which uh, means that um, it's changing as we continue to roll these up and sell them off to the larger players but total expenses you know on the low side if you're looking at um, dollars per square foot could be as low as 15 cents or so per square foot dollars per square foot on the high side your expense ratio could be as high as gosh 17 eighteen dollars a square foot and the average falling in uh, right now right around five dollars uh, but again that's national averages depending upon whether it's A, B, or C, what part of the country it's located in is really what we're looking at. So the current trends that we're seeing and what banks are also wanting to know is what is your exit strategy and what are you looking to do? Because there's a lot of industry consolidation. These larger portfolio transactions have uh, been going on for a number of years. And there's a lot of folks that are rolling up facilities, buying individuals, managing them as one, putting them into the fold, and then sending them off and packaging them up, rolling them out, and uh, selling them to a larger player upstream. There's fewer and fewer single-asset transactions. We're seeing a lot more disciplined investing, which means that people are discounting the cash flow. They are targeting an internal rate of return upwards of beginning at 10 11% or so, and that that is unleveraged, meaning without debt on it, and higher. Folks are now required to use a market study by the lenders, uh, they are requiring this. So expect to have some form of a market study that is uh, paid for, and the lenders uh, are demanding deposits and multiple sources of repayment, meaning cash flow from existing businesses. They want to see how much liquidity you have, what other investments that you have, and uh, really tightening up their underwriting to make sure that they get paid back no matter what. All values are based on existing cash flow, trailing 12 months income and expenses, no pro forma going. Uh, meaning going forward, they're not lending based on pro forma anymore, and we are seeing continued pressure of uh, oversupply in some markets and a a lack of credit. So just be prepared when you're looking at a facility to make sure that the market is strong and that there is a lack of credit out there, uh, meaning a lack of available funds for your project. The good news is self-storage remains extremely strong. The fundamentals underlying self-storage remain extremely strong. Um, We are an asset class that is in high demand during the pandemic and during a recession. It is also an essential business, so it didn't close. And those that already had technology in place didn't really skip a beat. And those that didn't have put it in for a very little cost. And again, that's That's why we have seen self-storage outpacing and outperforming all other forms of real estate. We're seeing a roughly a 15% vacancy rate in both bull and bear cycles, which is strong. That is uh, extremely strong for our asset class. And the trade area remains constant, which means that it's a very predictable business model, that we're looking at roughly three and a half to five mile radius of our facility and to calculate the average square foot per person. So we're seeing, again, roughly the national average, somewhere around six to six and a half square feet per person being equilibrium meaning below that in terms of square footage of self-storage per person, where in an undersupplied market, above that is oversupplied. And the asset class remains uh, the lowest in bank defaults of all commercial property types. And it has, since I've been in the business um, for over 15 years now, um, it has the lowest loan loss and the lowest loan defaults of all commercial asset types. So again, that is the good news that lenders love this asset class. They want it on their balance sheet because it performs so well. More good news is that we're seeing a growing sophistication and due diligence by borrowers, your competitors, which means that they're not out there just just loosey-goosey throwing offers out and running prices up that um, other folks are making sure and doing a very conservative underwriting. And so they're not just throwing prices out there, throwing offers out there that are unrealistic and driving prices up for the rest of the market. So with that, obviously, as much as we can touch on today in this amount of time, the underwriting, the valuation, and then ultimately assembling a loan package, don't forget that you can't include too much. You've got one shot and you've got one shot only to turn this into your commercial lender, who's then going to turn it over to, a loan committee and he has to sell this deal for you on your behalf. So make sure that the loan package is complete with your business plan, all supporting documentation. Ask him, ask your lender or her if they want printed copies to be able to take into loan committee so everybody has a copy because you're competing. That commercial lender's loan is competing with several other loans that are going to be presented to the loan committee whenever they get together. So you want yours to rise to the top, show them that you have done your homework, you know what you're doing, that you are not a credit risk because if you were this prepared in putting together your loan pack, package then they imagine that you are going to be that diligent in how you manage your operations once you have purchased this facility so um, there is no second chance to make a fantastic first impression with these banks so please take that to heart and that is what will allow your loan to rise to the top your loan request to rise to the top and ultimately get approved so with that gang take that information go out if you haven't already find yourself a deal put together that package and if it passes muster meaning you're interested in it now it's time for you to then take information to be able to share your passion and excitement for this project with the lender. And we've just given you the roadmap to be able to do so. All right. So with that game, make it a great day and we will see you on the next episode. Take care. Hey gang, wait three things before you leave. First, don't forget to subscribe to the Self Storage Podcast and turn on your notifications so you never miss another episode. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review if you like the show. Second, be sure to share your favorite episodes and more via Instagram and don't forget to tag us. And lastly, head to the links in the show description and hit the follow and subscribe button on Twitter and Facebook to get a front row seat as we grow and scale our business and bring you along with us. Take care.